Hello and joining you this week from a location in the UK which will hopefully not require me to call upon the hospitality of Davy and Shona Findlay whose invitation to use their bathroom during the protest enforced stoppage at Sunday's Men's World Road Race Championship. Matthew van der Poel partly credited with his winning ride. Scottish newspaper The Daily Record's front page headline the next day. Thank poo very much. My name is Daniel Freeber, and that will hopefully be the last scatological reference in this episode of the Cycling Podcast, or indeed ever again, in which we'll reach for the bleach and hopefully clean up whatever lingering questions and odours we or indeed you may have had after Sunday's Arrivé episode. Joining us to do that today is a man who was in Glasgow at the weekend, rode the road race, but as far as we know, did not avail himself of the Findlay facilities. He is the Motown maestro, so there is the temptation. Temptation, temptations, get it? In fact, to borrow the words and sentiments of a famous song, and speaking of cleaning and all things non-lavatorial, the way he sweeps us off our feet, he could be our broom, the way he smells so sweet. You know, he could be sweet perfume. Larry, we haven't had you for a while. I know. Um, I miss you guys. Yeah, last scene. Larry Warbass last seen um, on the penultimate day of the Giro after the finish line, striking a pose for us um, just after you'd finished your time trial. But good to have you back, Larry. And you were in Glasgow at the weekend. And we'll be talking about your world championship with my co-host... Um, fellow opening batsman, um, Lionel Burney. Lionel, how are you? Where are you? Well, I'm, What's going on? I'm just just at home, Daniel. And I'm, I was impressed you even mentioned the toilet break Vanderpool made during uh, well, the, to be honest, the protest I, 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 on Sunday. I was up at I was up at seven o'clock this morning, scrambling, floundering around, trying to think of something obtuse to say in today's intros, and that was the first thing that came to mind. If I'd had a bit more time to prepare, I wouldn't have got a mention. Funny, actually, I didn't even know about that. <laughs> no. At least he used the toilet, unlike uh, Tom Dumoulin a few years ago, remember, at the Giro. Um, well, you remember with horror, Daniel. It dominated I do, a, I a, do. an episode of the podcast, and... Uh, yeah, it was an unusual one, wasn't it? I mean, I don't want to go deeply into this, but no, please don't. Because when you've got to go, you've got to go. But slightly unusual to need a number two during the middle of a race, Larry. Or was that not unusual? And, and he was apparently the fourth or fifth Dutch member of the Dutch envoy who had availed himself of uh, Davy Findlay's Davy Findlay, who was proudly he proudly posed next to the um, the toilet itself for the Daily Record. I should add. I'll be honest, uh, I also kind of needed to do the same, but I didn't really consider that as an option. Uh, yeah, I mean, the problem was, you know, first we actually just came barreling down this road. You know, it was a super narrow road. It was kind of like important for positioning because it was just before, it was like, yeah, it was like one of the most narrow spots on the on the course before the the circuit. And then it we were kind of barreling into this downhill before like the only kind of climb and uh so yeah we were flying down this road and then all of a sudden we just stopped you know and and uh and so i guess we didn't know how long we were going to be there for for a while so i don't think any of us really considered that as an option um but yeah i mean i probably peed three times while we were stopped actually (laughs) but uh but yeah on on a serious note i've heard riders over the last couple of years when we have had 
um, stoppages for various reasons. I remember one in well in Paris Nice, the stage start was moved forward or back because of inclement weather. But with the amount that you guys eat these days, um, particularly pre-race, but also during races, um, this can cause a bit of a problem, can't it? And also, Larry, um, Lionel and I were talking on the day of the race on Sunday. I sort of suggested that for some riders, having effectively an hour off um, in the middle of the race might have been pretty helpful. But I did see other riders... Um, in their post-race interviews talk about how it sort of messed with their legs yeah. maybe their head slightly i actually think yeah i mean like personally i think it probably hurt more than anything because we were like right right at the front already um and i don't know it's like you stop for 50 minutes and actually the kind of confusing thing is like you know now like you were saying we eat a lot right and you have this like kind of fueling strategy but like we don't really have some sort of strategy for like if you stop for 50 minutes in the middle of the race, right? You know, but then you're still going there and you're like kind of hungry. So then it was like, I don't know, for me, for example, maybe I I had maybe like a gel in a bar when we were stopped or something. And then we got started and I actually felt like maybe I ate too much as we were stopped, you know. Um, and the thing was, was like we started in a full sprint. But it was kind of funny because the whole time you're sort of like, even though you're already, you're stopped, like we're still jostling for position, you know? So like there's still the fight. And uh, actually the best part was like, so, you know, it's kind of like self-policing, you know, everyone knows where everyone was. So like, you know, if someone was trying to like move up from where they were, you know, like people are like yelling. But anyway, there was this one kid from Rwanda who he's just walking up the side from the back you know he was like in the back and he just starts walking up walking up everyone starts yelling like what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing he goes up to Wout Van Aert and he's like can I have a photo with you and uh and, and his director had come with him and his director takes a photo of this Rwandan guy with Wout Van Aert and then the whole peloton started cheering actually which was it was awesome it was pretty funny and then the guy just stayed in the front, actually. Uh, but everyone was cool with it because it, it was a pretty funny, uh, funny story. But yeah, um, I mean, you should have waited a few hours. If he'd asked Van Art for a, a photo, at maybe four, half four in the afternoon, he could have got a, he could have got himself a medal. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. I mean, yeah. The thing was, was once once we started again, it was literally it was like a full sprint. And actually, I think it kind of like hurt the breakaway a little bit because like. Uh, I think they were so scared to perhaps like, you know, lose time on the breakaway that, I mean, we went like bats out of hell, like from the restart. And, uh, and yeah, I think it was also because we were probably like max 10 minutes from this climb. And, uh, and so for me, the hardest part of the day was probably this like little restart. And I think actually I never really recovered from that like acceleration before we hit the circuit um so yeah. you don't you don't love i remember talking to you during the giro you don't love those explosive starts do you i remember the day of the shortened stage yeah. of the giro to Grand montana you were not thrilled about that were you yeah. because you knew it was going to be explosive and particularly the start was going to be fast yeah i mean that was also a little bit different because like when that day is so short it's like then it's just the purest climbers we started the bottom of the climb right so then it was the purest climbers we're going to get in the breakaway whereas like for me i kind of need like a long you know, a battle before like the breakaway goes. Uh, otherwise, like it's hard, uh, you know, 
that day, like for example, aside from Derek G, the breakaway, we're all like 50 kilos. Um, and then, yeah, Derek G, who was just like, yeah, a god there. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah. Chap, should we have a news roundup before we hear more about Larry's World Championship and the World Championship Road Race in general? Uh, Lionel, um, I'm on duty this week, so feel free to interject with any mistakes that I might make. There may be a few because um, we'll mainly be indoors for this week's uh, news roundup. Um, so I'm going to round up some of the other action that's been happening in Glasgow. It's mainly been on the track, so we'll start there. Track, cycling and toilets. I couldn't be further outside my comfort zone this week. <laughs> Um, I'll also I'll mainly focus on some of the names familiar from outdoor cycling um, where we are on more, more familiar ground and um, that's more generally our can of iron brew on the cycling podcast so on the women's side we've had Chloe Diger winning the individual pursuit ahead of Francisca Brauser while in the team pursuit the British quartet of Archibald Barker Knight and Morris edged out Denmark Barker that is Elna Barker and her teammate Noah Evans also won the Madison uh, sticking with endurance events Lotta Kopecky followed up her outstanding Tour de France by taking gold in the points race and the elimination while your compatriot Larry Jennifer Valente took the scratch race on the men's side on Sunday Filippo Ganna overhauled Dan Bigham in the dying meters of a thrilling individual pursuit final to take gold in that discipline This after Ganna's Italian team had lost out to Denmark in the team pursuit a couple of days earlier. Uh, Lionel, you watched watched the individual pursuit you were telling me earlier? I did indeed, yeah. Very close between Bigham and Ganna in the final, uh, I think. uh, Well, Bigham was a key part of Filippo Ganna's world our record support crew wasn't he he's uh well he's a kind of player manager isn't he dan bigham rider coach performance analyst uh really knows his stuff on you know aerodynamics and and uh, pacing strategy and all of that kind of stuff so um yeah quite a, a remarkable result that uh, dan bigham who you know let's face it is we wouldn't think of as being in the um, the same bracket as Filippo Ganna obviously is because he held the world hour record that Ganna broke, didn't he? Um, but to push him so close and get a silver medal in the individual pursuit, uh, really extraordinary ride. And uh, Jonathan Milan, you know, another um, Italian phenomenon, really. Uh, won the points jersey at the Giro this year, won a stage at the Giro, didn't he? And, well, you may well mention his uh, upcoming transfer, but bronze medal for him. So, yeah, it feels like the... The kind of the road stars are kind of back in individual pursuit land at the World Championships with, well, in the form of uh, Ghana and Milan, certainly. Said uh, the Italian silver in the individual, sorry, in the team pursuit, gold in the individual pursuit with Ghana. Only ecstasy, no agony for Portugal as they took their first ever gold medal at Track Worlds thanks to Yuri Leitao who won the Omnium. Omnium. Leitao usually plies his trade on the road for Caja Rural, who will be at the Vuelta in a few weeks' time, uh, having missed out last year. There are also titles for two British riders, William Tidball and Ethan Vernon, in the scratch race and elimination, respectively. Tidball rides on the road for St. Piran and Vernon for Sudal Quickstep. In the Madison, the Dutch pair of Jan Willem van Skip and Yuri Havik run out winners. And talking of team events that may take the uninitiated a little while to understand, back on the road, Switzerland once again triumphed in the team time trial mixed relay. 
Congrats to Stefan Kung, Stefan Bissiger, Mauro Schmidt, Elie Chabet, Nicole Collier and Marlon Reusser, who led the Swiss home uh, despite a crash. Reusser had a crash in the, um, in the women's leg half of um, the mixed team time trial relay. Um, they won by seven seconds from France and they were 51 seconds clear of Germany. Elsewhere, the transfer merry-go-round that opened nine days ago, slowly creaking, cranking into gear. Not too many unveilings in the past, in the last couple of days, but we have had a little trek, as you said, Lionel, confirming that Jonathan Milan will ride for them for the next three years. Another sprinter, the German Max Kanter, is leaving Movistar for Astana, and Sven Eric Bistrom is going from Intermarché to Groupama FDJ. Um, we mentioned Portugal and Yuri Leitao earlier. Well, UAE have pulled off a major coup by recruiting the 19-year-old Portuguese Antonio Morgado, winner of the Giro della Lunigiana junior race last year. We featured that in a kilometer zero in this year's adult Giro, um, full Giro. Um, Morgado, um, Larry, is much talk about him on the sort of pro peloton grapevine he's one of well one of these one of the latest in a series of riders that uae have tried to sign up very young very early jan christian also i should have mentioned a swiss rider who's also going to uae um hotly tipped for great things Morgado. yeah i mean there's a little bit of talk about him but i i think it's probably because he rides for action or axion and uh some of the guys uh, who used to ride for Axion told me that, yeah, this guy is supposed to be like, you know, the next great thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's the only thing I, I'd heard about him, but uh, I don't really know a whole lot about him. Uh, so, yeah. Well, speaking of slightly more senior but still prodigies, young prodigies, uh, nonetheless, Remco Evenepoel has urged his father and Sudar Quickstep boss Patrick Lefebvre to stop discussing his future in public. This after Patrick, that is Remco's dad, hinted again that he could leave Sudal Quickstep before the end of his contract, which is due to expire in 2026. And the other Patrick, that is Lefebvre, said the Avonapool family should harmonise their violins. Uh, Lefebvre's exact quote, last week Remco said that the bullshit has to end. Barely a week later, his father says the opposite. The Avonapool family must harmonise the violins. Um, Lionel. Well, I mean, um, think back to Patrick Evenepoel's big transfer from Histor to Colstrop in 1991. Uh, same level of controversy. He'd won the Serang Arkan Serang Kames and was the subject of a big money move to one of the other kind of Belgian B-list like teams, Colstrop. Uh, no, this is this is actually true. That was that was Patrick <laughs> Evenepoel's uh, probably the highlight of his career. Actually, he also won the Grand Prix de Wallonie in 1993. Um, That's actually. Yeah, good race. Mm. That is a good race. Yeah, so that was his one kind of uh, real pro win, uh, Patrick Evenepoel. Yeah, it's a tricky one, this, isn't it? I mean, you know, Remco Evenepoel is still a very young man. It wouldn't, you know, it's not a surprise that his his family are deeply invested in his career. Um, It's just when it spills over into into the media and becomes kind of, you know, butting of heads, Patrick versus Patrick. Um, I can imagine some kind of Netflix series on this, maybe. Yeah, the, these rumours are rumbling on there about, particularly about Ineos and Ineos potentially even buying out Patrick Lefebvre, buying the team, buying the 
the license um, effectively, um, which seems it seems a strange one. I mean, particularly with Remco tied down to a long-term contract, and obviously um, two Belgian sponsors there, you would think they would be very happy to have him on the books, and there'll be no there'll be no thought of them leaving professional cycling at this at this moment in time. But um, Larry, I don't know what you've heard about Sudal Quickstep for next year. I mean, there is some talk as well about the fact they've not got many riders tied down to contracts. I know there have been riders trying to negotiate renewals and Patrick Lefebvre has been telling them that he hasn't got any money. Um, but on the other hand, we've got um, well Lefebvre himself pretty much confirming that Mikel Lander is going to go there as a domestique for Remco. The rumours that George Bennett is also going to Sudal Quickstep as a domestique for Remco as well. So um, all, all a little bit murky at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard any of that, but uh, as in, I, I mean, I heard about <clears throat> both uh, George Bennett and um, Mikel Landa, and and you know, I heard that they're really trying to strengthen their their climbing support. Um, but I would say the whole not having any money thing is classic Lefebvre, you know, businessman always trying to get people for cheap, which he seems to be able to do. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I think it's seen as a team that uh, always performs well, and you know, I think a lot of riders. Um, are happy to go there because, you know, they have good equipment and <clears throat> it usually seems like they're able to get the best out of, uh, yeah, a lot of riders. So, um, you know, I think they're able to probably get guys cheaper than most other teams. Um, yeah, due to both of those, those things. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, I, I've heard all these rumors and yeah, I heard, you know, that, uh, <clears throat> the boss of Ineos really wants to win the tour and, you know, the next however many years. Um, and he sees that, you know, aside from the two dudes who got first and second, uh, who are pretty tied up, uh, the only other guy who could maybe do it is Remco. And, um, so, you know, <clears throat> I just, the thing is, is I could never imagine, uh, Lefebvre letting him go. I mean, unless it was the most unreal amount of money, you know, he has to get something out of it. And, you know, I mean, Remco is like a Belgian national hero now. So um, I just, to me, it would be the dumbest thing ever, uh, even for an absurd amount of money. You know, if, if I had a pro cycling team, I wouldn't let him go, uh, especially if I were Belgian. You know, if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let him go. So it's a delicate yeah. dance, this though, isn't it? I mean, Patrick Lefebvre has run this team for a long time. He's 68 years old. He did once say in a uh, an interview that I did with him for Friends of the Podcast that, you know, when he decides it's time to stop, he will just stop and that will be that. Um, you know, and he has his exit strategy in mind. He's not going to go on forever. Um, he kind of does. I mean, one of the quotes was, if you don't respect your contract, you get sued. And that's one of Lefebvre's <laughs> kind of, MOs, isn't it? His modus operandi is get the riders. I'm not saying that Remco Evenepoel's been signed on the cheap, you know, probably a very big contract that he's got, but um, there's this sense, having got him for a number of years to the end of 2026, you know, there is a sense that Remco Evenepoel could outgrow this contract in, to a degree, especially if there's significant and firm interest from a rival team. And it's this delicate dance, isn't it, between the ink on the contract and kind of the market value. Well, and and that's where it gets sensitive and tricky. Lefebvre is a man who believes that the contract speaks louder than absolutely everything else. And we know that in the real world and, you know, the, the world of soccer, um, you, you know, kind of shows the way, you know, a contract can be 
Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it depends, though, doesn't it? You can, you could. And and Quickstep have done that. Lefebvre has done that himself. There have been occasions when he's bought riders out of contracts, um, or or, so... or he's put the squeeze on to, to to sort of move riders on when he's decided he doesn't want them. I mean, the the list is uh, significant, isn't it? I mean, you know, the sense that Julian Alaphilippe was maybe getting the Sam Bennett treatment uh, earlier this year, you know, was palpable, wasn't it? So. Um, yeah, it's one to watch this, and the fact that you know Evenepoel, as the kind of I don't want to sort of uh, uh, you know be glib about this, but you know he him saying that both his dad and Lefebvre should stay quiet about this. You know the the, the athlete kind of caught in the middle in the sort of the the, the child role, if you like, when uh, he is the he is the talent who could deliver. Uh, well, like you say, Larry, probably the only person that really could. Uh, challenge today Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard in uh, next year's Tour de France perhaps right he's also someone who's more than capable of and more than eloquent enough to speak for himself Remco Evenepoel does a pretty good job of communicating through the media um, one thing I would say Lionel um, I spoke a couple of days ago to a rider who used to represent Patrick Lefebvre's team um, uh, and we were talking about this the likelihood of Lefebvre getting out and maybe selling um, selling the whole business, the team, to Ineos, Jim Radcliffe. And um, legacy and legacy to Belgian cycling are also a question. I think that maybe form more more in sort of important in Patrick Lefebvre's thinking than people might maybe imagine. I don't think that the optics of him sort of selling the, almost the de facto Belgian national team and the... The Belgian national talisman, i.e. Remco Evenepoel, to well, someone of, of any other nationality, but particularly, you know, Jim Radcliffe, a kind of nouveau riche of professional cycling, would go down particularly well. You think he also cares? worth, um, also worth he cares. mentioning. Yeah. <laughs> also, well, Lefebvre only owns uh, a fifth of the team. The other that is true. 80% that is, true. is owned by the, the Czech gazillionaire, uh, Steniak Bakala, <laughs> isn't it? So, um, that is true. You know, it, it's not solely Lefebvre's to yeah. sell. That is true. Yeah. I, I yeah. did, when I did see the whole thing about him saying he'll retire sometime soon, it did cross my mind. Like, maybe he's like, okay, I'll just cash out, sell Remco for a bunch of money and then just run, you know? But uh, I don't know if that would happen. <laughs> Chaps, finally, we'll end the news roundup with some sad news. The death yesterday, 95 years of age, of Federico Bajamontes, a.k.a. the Eagle of Toledo. Uh, Bajamontes was the first Spaniard to win the Tour de France in 1959. He was also the king of the mountains on six occasions and indeed completed the clean sweep of mountains titles in all major tours. Um, he also won over 70 races in total. Um, Lionel, a real sort of icon of the 20th century in professional cycling. Undoubtedly one of the greatest climbers of all time. I mean, you watch old footage of Federico Bahamontes and you can watch, you know, even if you watch Eddie Merckx in the 70s or even certain riders in the 80s, it's almost hard to imagine them um, excelling or looking good in today's peloton um, just because of the you know the, the sort of style the body movements look completely different mainly because of the technology but but Bahamontes is someone who you watch back and um, he looks as good in sort of 19 in the 1950s as the the best and most elegant and most swashbuckling climbers of today look nowadays yeah and I think he was very much to the forefront of our minds uh, during the tour because of the stage to Le Puy de Dom, which is where 
well, Bahamontes won the time trial on Le Puy de Dome in 1959, which effectively set him up for the overall uh, victory in that year's tour. And if I'm not mistaken, Bahamontes climbed Le Puy de Dome quicker than the stage winner this year, Mike Woods, and was only sort of two minutes 50 or something, three minutes or thereabouts off uh, Tede Pogacar's, uh, you know, kind of, I guess we have to call all-time record on Le Puy de Dome. I know uh, well, it hasn't been climbed by the Tour since 1988, so it's uh, a bit like comparing apples and oranges, I guess. But, I mean, that puts into um, context, you know, Bahamonte's brilliance as an athlete, uh, someone who probably wouldn't be all that out of place today. And I suppose that late 50s era, you know, the Onkatil, Charlie Gaul, um, that was when cycling was becoming a kind of a, a sport in rather than this kind of um, battle of survival. I know obviously Coppy had proceeded and he, he was the sort of bridge, I guess, between uh, the Tour de France being this sort of endurance feat, you know, sort of the, the privateers and the, almost with the sort of the bike packing and, and gravel racing spirit of today, I guess, you know, that was that was how the Tour de France started. Whereas by the late 50s, uh, these guys were stars in uh, in Europe and in their own countries. I mean, Bahamontes was paid a huge amount of money, wasn't he, by um, the teams that he rode for, especially when you're thinking of, uh, you know, 1950s Spain, 1960s Spain was not a, a particularly wealthy country. I mean, he would have been one of the big stars, you know. And when you talk about the, the rivalry or the, the, the sort of comparison between cycling and, and football in Spain, um, you know, Bahamontes is, is kind of the... I guess the sort of Real Madrid figure, isn't he, of Spanish cycling? The first to win the Tour, that's significant. Um, obviously, then Ocaña came next, and then, uh, well, then a big gap between uh, Ocaña and Pedro Delgado. But uh, yeah, Bahamontes, the the nickname as well, the Eagle of Toledo, the King of the Mountains titles, which I think Lucien van Impe levelled, didn't he? he? Was six in the in the seventies or early eighties, and then obviously Richard Virenque overtook that. Uh, with seven titles, but obviously a bit of an asterisk against uh, some of those or all of those. Um, but yeah, I was talking to Alistair Fotheringham, who knew Bahamontes well, um, and, and he just painted a picture of a you know a, a, a character, someone who was larger than life, you know, until his very latest years. And uh, I think he was at the Welter, wasn't he, a few years ago when Primoz Roglic was in the lead or had won a stage and. Uh, yeah, he still enjoyed keeping up with the cycling and I suppose was somebody who laid the groundwork and the blueprint for modern Spanish cycling and, and the love of climbers. Yes, Lino, he was a, he was a great character. I interviewed him a few years ago and he was, well, he was notoriously salty about Richard Veronk and um, losing that sort of record um, of King of the Mountains titles and sort of didn't really consider Veronica a proper, a proper climber. Um, but a, a great a great character, was very sort of spry and lively um, deep into his 90s. And he'd come, I mean, as you mentioned Orcania, both he and Orcania, sort of some of the mystique around them um, derived from the fact they'd both come from abject poverty um, in the... The, well, the Bahamontes family, they sort of moved around the kind of Madrid area due to or sort of in the wake of the Spanish Civil War and the Bahamontes dad would break rocks uh, and sold them um, for road building and, and, and um, Federico sort of helped him with this and also sort of sold scrap metal and rescued kind of 
um, live ammunition from trenches used in the Civil War to just sort of get a few pesetas together, and that's how he sort of bought his first bike but um yeah a real icon of spanish cycling the mayor of toledo carlos velasquez yesterday declared there'd be two days of official mourning and um Federico bahamondes is no no doubt someone who'll be very much in our thoughts at the vuelta a España in a few weeks time shoot uh, shoot that area du peloton cycling podcast team car the back of the pack please that's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. A VPN is a virtual private network to keep all of your devices safe and secure when you're browsing online. Daniel's off to the Vuelta shortly, and I know he uses a VPN uh, not just to watch Arsenal matches when he's not in the UK, but also to keep his data safe and secure. And I've been a NordVPN customer since before they started sponsoring the podcast, and I signed up initially because I wanted to make sure that my internet connections on the move were secure, especially when doing sensitive stuff like logging onto the bank account wanted to make sure that I was doing so in a secure way. And when you're using 4G or 5G or using the hotel Wi-Fi, uh, some of those connections, well, I wasn't all that confident that they would be secure. And now I use NordVPN when I'm at home as well because it gives that safety and security. And if you want the same security when you're online, go to nordvpn.com slash tcp and sign up it would apparently take the world's most powerful computer billions of years to unencrypt your data when you are using the nordvpn so if you sign up at nordvpn.com tcp and go for the two-year plan you'll get an additional four months on top and that covers all of the plans whether you sign up for standard plus or complete cover so go to nordvpn.com tcp it's also completely risk-free because nord offer a 30-day money-back guarantee so if you sign up and think it's not something you're going to benefit from then you can get your money back but i'm pretty confident once you've used nordvpn and you see um, that it's preventing your devices from downloading any malware or having any of your connections interrupted or that it doesn't slow down your internet connection at all when you are connected, you will see the benefits of using NordVPN. Well, chaps, we and well, listeners, we promised you that we would hear about Larry's World Championship Road Race experience in Glasgow. We've already heard a little bit about it. Um, but Larry, give us the full, the full summary of your trip to Scotland. Um, any sort of... Any cultural observations you'd like to make, but also we're mainly interested in your race on Sunday. Yeah, so <clears throat> I guess uh, in terms of the race, I came straight from Poland. So um, flew the night after the last stage. And uh, yeah, so I wasn't in Glasgow or Scotland for a very long time, but uh, it was a pleasant experience. Um, <clears throat> How was that, Larry? Coming from that, that seemed like a quite a hectic schedule itinerary for a lot of riders. I mean, I thought about Michal Kwiatkowski as well. He won. Uh, sorry, he didn't win in Poland. Um, he finished on the podium in Poland, didn't he? But um, he came straight to Glasgow, and he was the only rider in the Polish team. But there were quite a few of you, weren't there, who came directly from Poland, which I think is kind of unusual. You wouldn't ordinarily do a one-week stage race and then go and ride the worlds a couple of days later. Yeah, I mean, I would say in a, maybe on a normal course, it would have been probably quite good. Uh, you know, as in, 
I think like a 270K race is fatiguing enough that like <clears throat> you don't need to be crazy fresh. But I would say with this course, with all the accelerations, it probably wasn't the best prep, you know. Um, for example, like Liège, you know, a lot of guys usually do quite well coming off of Tour of the Alps. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a gamble, I guess. And, you know, I know there were quite a few guys who stopped a few days early, like Sam Bennett, Olaf Koy, uh, and maybe one or two others. Um, and then, yeah, I would say on my flight, there were probably around like 15 riders, actually. So quite a, quite a few guys um, went from... <clears throat> Uh, Poland to to the race um, but yeah maybe in the end it was a little bit much uh, for this course so so yeah anyway um, with the national team we were kind of like staying in the middle of nowhere uh, but it was really beautiful it was actually I guess I have been to Scotland before during the Tour of Britain but uh, I didn't see a whole lot when I was there and I have to say it was really like picturesque and beautiful and uh, I really enjoyed uh yeah, riding around where, where we were, even if the weather was not exactly the same as the Cote d'Azur. Uh, so, you know, it rained like pretty much our whole ride the day before the race. And then, um, yeah, it was very cloudy. But uh, um, yeah, I guess as the race went, um, my job was sort of like to keep Nielsen Paulus out of trouble um, for, yeah, the whole... I guess run into the circuit and everything like that and position him well for like the climbs on the circuit. Um, so pretty much from like 50 K in to, uh, 120 K in. And so, yeah, we were right at the front next to, you know, the guys who were riding and like Australian team. And yeah, we, we were in good position. We were on the front row for the protest, but unfortunately we didn't really get to see, uh, I wanted to like go up there and see what was going on, but they wouldn't let us go, go see, uh, see the drama. Did you know what was going on, roughly? Well, yeah, because like uh, the UCI president came and then was telling us what was happening. Um, and we were literally like on the front row. So we were talking to him and then he explained. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of things. Uh, <clears throat> then I was next to um, my trade teammate, Benoit Cosnefroy. And <clears throat> it was kind of funny because uh, he was like, he said in French, something that I misunderstood. Um, and he said, he said, yeah, ici, ils ont pas le droit de tirer les gens. And uh, there are two translations for the word tirer, which is to pull or to shoot. You went, yeah, you went with the American. And me being American, I was like, yeah. what? he's like, hey, in France, to me, I thought he said, in France, we just shoot him. You know, and I was like, "Wow, like that's crazy!" And 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 uh, and then I later, and then he started laughing when he realized that I misinterpreted uh, the two uses of the word, and he meant they pulled them off the road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, then yeah, they told us that they had an anti-glue truck coming uh, to remove the people from the road, which we were all shocked that that was a thing that existed. Um, So yeah, anyway. To be honest, actually, no one was that upset about it. Everyone was just kind of like pretty relaxed and it was pretty, pretty good ambiance in the Peloton. And then, um, yeah, we uh, sat there for 50 minutes and then got going again. It was like a full sprint into the uh, the climb. We went really hard up the climb and then, uh, yeah, it was pretty much chaos until 
um, the entrance of the circuit. And when we turned onto the circuit, we turned like left onto one of the hills and yeah, it was just like a full sprint up the hill. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I was a bit, uh, dead from having ridden on the front for a while. And, uh, so yeah, didn't have the greatest legs, but, uh, there were so many people cheering my name around the circuit. So if any of those people were cycling podcast listeners, Thank you. Uh, of course they were yeah, cycling yeah, podcasts. Yeah. Why else would they be cheering your exactly. name? I mean, uh, you know, Palmares notwithstanding. That, that was awesome. So actually, even once I got like dropped from the bunch, I just did a lap uh, solo by myself because I, I thought it, I was really enjoying it. So uh, it was just cool. Just peacocking through the streets exactly, of Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Larry, Larry, talking about the, the circuit, just wind back the clock a little bit and tell us... Um, I don't know whether, because I just looked at your Strava file. You mentioned how picturesque it was. It looks like you were staying in a place or near a place called Kirk Dean in the Borders. Is that right? Um, yeah, it was like Scottish were, Borders. You... I mean, it was called Netherard, uh, but right, right. Uh, I, I don't know if that's like... And you sort of headed towards Peebles and yeah, Cardrona. we went for um, a coffee in Peebles. But, yeah, but just what, what had been the... The, the verdict and uh, what had been the reaction I don't know whether you personally had gone into Glasgow and seen the circuit maybe on the Saturday but what was the feeling in the American camp because you know we read and we talked quite a lot Lionel and I about particularly the French were extreme seemed to be extremely dissatisfied with the circuit and in fact after the road race Thomas Vauclau the national coach said this isn't road cycling it wasn't road cycling in my opinion in reference to the fact that it was it was maybe more like what we would sort of consider a crit oh it was definitely what are the Americans what do you guys thought Um, yeah I mean so uh since we were kind of far from the circuit and there was also I think the junior race uh the day before our race um so they had previewed the course like the day that I flew in, you know, so the last day of Poland. Um, and then, so I didn't get to see the circuit before we raced it. And essentially they were all just like laughing at me, like how much of a shock I'm going to have when we hit it. Um, cause they were essentially just saying, yeah, it's, it's a crit. Um, and I would affirm, <laughs> uh, it was a criterium. And I think, you know, the thing is we saw it, it was so, I guess, selective because, you know, normally criteriums don't last six hours, right? Uh, so, um, yeah, it was essentially a, well, okay, you can't say, it was, maybe took us a few hours to get to the circuit, but it was more than a three hour long criterium and uh, with some hills and that's pretty, uh, yeah, that's pretty fatiguing and that'll definitely lead to a race of attrition. So I definitely would say it was a lot like a criterium, but I don't know if we can say it was a bad race if like the four strongest guys came out on top, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I would say, uh, I wouldn't do the same kind of race every single year, but you know, I think in terms of, uh, an outsider's view, I think it was probably an awesome race to watch. Uh, but you know, a lot of times the awesome races to watch are not the awesome races to do. So, um, so yeah, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I disagree with them, but I wouldn't say that they're totally correct either. No, I think we covered this in our Arrive sort of snap summary, our knee jerk reaction to the race. I, I personally found the middle phase of the race quite difficult to get a handle on what was going on. I, I, I it didn't really feel like a road race and, uh, and I suppose, um, in the kind of the the reaction to what was an absolutely you know barnstorming um finale to the race you know the last uh 
what 55 60k was was uh you know a gripping watch uh, lots of people including some of our listeners have said oh there should be some kind of you know city center uh, series where um you know races are held all over the world and uh, and and i suppose that that thought made me think that actually that the old adage that it's the riders that make the race is is actually um the, the key point because our very good friend brian nygaard uh, tweeted something uh, on a sunday he said if elvis presley mick jagger david bowie and prince walked into a bar 39 kilometers to go at the world championships and I, th- I think that kind of sums it up the thing that made it was the fact that those um those four riders uh, plus mads pedersen who is just kind of you know half a step below them in, in classics terms were at the front going shoulder to analogy? shoulder. Is he Prince in that analogy? I think yeah, that's pr- pretty good. Or... I, was, I mean, yeah, I was wondering, you know, I was going to say the Beatles, but then, you know, somebody's got to be Paul McCartney, haven't they? And I was wondering which was which. I suppose uh, today Pogacar's got to be John Lennon. Um, and then uh, Van der Poel and Van Aert draw the slightly short straw. I'm going to upset Paul McCartney fans here, but uh, I'd rather be George Harrison than Paul McCartney. So I say Van der Poel is, is the George Harrison and poor old Mads Pedersen's got to be Ringo, <laughs> I guess. But, you know, the, if there was a kind of global circuit series, it would be only that compelling if that profile of rider came and raced and took it seriously. And the thing that made everyone take it seriously was the fact that it's the World Championships and there's a rainbow jersey on the line. So it's not just about the course um it's about the riders it's about what's at stake and that's what made it the compelling watch that, that it was as a sort of sporting spectacle as i say that kind of once they got to the circuit there was almost this kind of feeling their way in the dark for a few laps and and i certainly as a spectator didn't really know where we were um you know the, it, you know the, the glasgow streets took a few laps to uh, get to grips with is that the same corner that as we saw you know 15 minutes ago oh no that's the next one you know there was this sense of of, of discombobulation as a, as a tv spectator um but undoubtedly the atmosphere and i've spoken to a few people who are up there um on the side of the road uh, the atmosphere was uh, was incredible electrifying kind of city center racing is very compelling but whether it would uh, stretch out over a sort of a series or or bear repeating as a world championship, probably not every year, but you know, once every once every decade to have a real city centre race. I think it's a different test for the riders, isn't it? For sure, yeah. And I think, it, yeah, like you said, I think the ambiance, everything was really, really cool. So, um, you know, I thought it was it was also a nice experience. It's just, yeah, maybe not every year, but I think there's a place for it for sure. The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science and larry what was the feeling in the u.s camp after the road race i mean nilson had done a good race obviously he didn't manage to grab onto the coattails of the you know the the glasgow beatles as lionel dubbed them but um he was he was in the thick of the action yeah i mean i I, we were pretty happy with like the race overall it was just right at the end um I mean, yeah, we were a bit upset that he got caught by this group from behind um, who, I don't know, they thought was totally actually out of the race. Um, and they were, the last time check they had had on this group behind was that they were three minutes behind them. And all of a sudden they were just there. Um, so uh, I would say our camp was rather upset about that development. And uh, yeah, so because 
yeah, for us, he should have been like, I don't know, maybe sixth or something. And, uh, and yeah, um, so that was too bad, but, uh, yeah, I guess that happens. And, you know, I think he did a really good race. I think it was a bit of a shame that crash from Narvaez kind of split that group up. And he was really disappointed about that because yeah, once that happened, he was the only guy trying to sort of close the gap to those four guys in front. Um, but yeah, you know, that also is part of racing too. So, um, so yeah. And Larry, this was your first senior world road race championships. Is that right? Yeah. You yeah. rode, uh, I think the under 23s I did, in yeah. Valkenburg in mm-hmm. 2012, I think it was. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just how, how did it come about, you know, getting in the team? What's that process like? And uh, um, I mean, g- given the nature of the course, obviously, the, the team needed somebody to do that big stretch over from Edinburgh and to uh, to Glasgow and, and the two climbs, particularly the Crow Road climb. So I guess that was, well, you said that was what you were in the team for, but how did it all come about getting selected? Yeah, so I mean, I actually, yeah, when I was national champ, I should have gone, but then uh, unfortunately I crashed uh, in the Vuelta and uh, broke my hand, so couldn't go that year. And then, uh, yeah, there were some other times where like maybe it would have been possible, but I wasn't exactly uh, the most motivated at the end of the year. Um, so, so yeah, this is the first time that it sort of worked out. Um, actually, I mean, I, I was a replacement for Matteo Jorgensen when he pulled out of the tour. Um, but yeah, they kind of like, um, I guess they choose based on... Yeah, a lot of different things. You know, your qualities as a rider. Uh, Cy- cycling mainly. One would yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cycling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, they saw, they heard I made a good coffee, so uh, they wanted wanted to bring <laughs> me. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, you know, I think for me, my whole, you, you know, you there are some automatic qualification um, possibilities, but the auto qualifiers are like, you essentially have to maybe podium in a monument. Uh, it might be win a Grand Tour stage, but it's it's like they're very difficult to auto qualify. So, oh, and then you can be national champion. So, um, uh, yeah, Quinn Simmons after he pulled out of the tour, he didn't want to go, um, so he gave up his spot. And then, um, yeah, there. I don't know, maybe Nielsen auto-qualified, but yeah, there there was maybe only, I don't know if there were really any auto-qualifications. And um, so yeah, it's pretty pretty tough to auto-qualify. And then after that, it's like a um, discretionary pick. And so you have to essentially fill out this petition and say like why essentially you would be a good fit. And you give them like your training peaks login so they can see your training and everything. Um, but essentially I don't think they really look at your training peaks. I I think they, they know everyone and, uh, they just choose who they think would be sort of like the best team. Um, so yeah, I guess my thing on the petition was just that, you know, I think I have probably the most experience of any of the American riders and, uh, um, yeah, I've done like 17 monuments and like 30 something classics and yeah, I'm a good can, helper. Can you, kind of, so. can you, can you trash other people on the petition? Oh yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Your application yeah I just, <laughs> saying why other everyone else's shit. It. Just take me, you know? Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, um, fun. I know for, for the Olympics in the past, I've heard that, uh, that can sort of happen. You kind of need to like put in essentially why you would be better than other certain people. But, uh, um, I don't know. 
Well, it's, it's a zero-sum game, isn't it? Exactly. It's me or, yeah. you know, it's be, kill or be killed. Um, Larry, before we well, wind up talking about the World Championship, just your reaction to the winner. And I don't know if you actually watched, you know, how things played out at the start of the race. Sorry, at the front end of the race um, in the last few laps. Um Matthew van der Poel, popular winner, and um, in the sort of analysis, post-race analysis, a lot of people have talked about how well he was the the favourite. He was the um, the perfect rider on that course. Would you agree with that as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think uh, so. We were on the bus watching the finish, um, and uh, yeah, sorry about that. So yeah, we were on the bus watching the finish, and from about sixty k to go, we saw kind of how everything played out. And one thing we said was when there was those four guys in front, um, we, (laughs) sorry about that. Uh, We said pretty much we'd be happy if any of the four won. Um, So, you know, it's like all four would have been great world championship, world champions. So, you know, Mads Peterson, he was cool. I mean, Vanderpool, awesome rider. Um, Tade would have been awesome just that would have been a really cool to have a tour de france contender you know be the world champion and uh while van Aert is a super classy rider too so um you know and they're all pretty well liked in the peloton at the same time so uh yeah we were like any of them would have been cool but i think vanderpool that'll be a really cool world champion so that was larry's dog in the background saying why he shouldn't go to the vuelta yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> One thing we didn't mention on Sunday, Daniel, and I suppose uh, does bear mentioning, and what a contrast for Van der Poel compared to Wollongong last year, where, of course, you know, he was arrested, wasn't he, after uh, two teenage girls pranked him in the hotel, knocking on the door repeatedly until quite late into the evening, uh, certainly when there's a World Championship road race to do the next morning. And then, well, Van der Poel came out, didn't he? And, uh, yeah, I mean, the reports of, of, of what specifically happened a, a a little bit hazy but you know did he grab one of the girl's arms or you know um, knock them against the wall uh the charges were dropped weren't they but it put a real cloud over van der Poel and the dutch team going into the race and i think he pulled out after about 35 kilometers of the race uh it should also be said he i mean he come in not feeling a hundred percent uh, was struggling with a little bit of illness and I think was staying on a different floor in the hotel to the rest of the Dutch team and sort of semi-quarantining from them, which is perhaps why uh, there was the issue with um, with, with people uh, knocking on his door. But uh, yeah, a real sort of turnaround from a year ago. Well, not quite a year ago because uh, the world was a little bit later, wasn't it? And one other thing I wanted to mention was we saw... Uh, on Twitter from our very good friend Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, of course. Um, he took a photo because he was in one of the cars uh, going round. Uh, people were asking, what does race radio do when there's no race radio for the riders? And, uh, well, the simple answer for that is uh, there's still race radio for the team directors, isn't there? Um, so that they know when riders need mechanical support or, you know, bike change or what have you. Anyway, Seb saw, um, I'm going to assume, friends of the podcast with a Buffalo Forever flag uh, in honour of our great friend Richard Moore, of course. And, uh, well, I think, can speak for Daniel when I say thank you very much for um, representing Richard there up in his home country over the weekend. 
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Well, chaps, I think that's just about as much cleaning up as we need to do from the World Championships, uh, World Championship Road Race, at least, in Glasgow at the weekend. Talking of cleaning up, though, um, I know that, that Matthew van der Poel's now the now sort of mythical shoe bezel um, that he tore off following his crash on the final lap. I saw that that had been retrieved and photographed. Um, I don't know if we know in whose possession it is, but that will now become a... A very valuable object, um, item of cycling memorabilia. This got me thinking, actually, well, a colleague of ours, Jan-Peter de Vliga of Het Newsblad in Belgium, got me thinking. I think he was writing something about these sort of, well, whether any other similar mythological um, objects, perhaps owing to mishaps, um, have also been preserved, I don't know, in museums or so on and so forth. Um, I was thinking of Eugène Christophe's fork from the 1913 Tour de France that he supposedly repaired en route to the Tourmalet, although there's there's some debate over whether that actually occurred. And I was thinking as well, do you know, the, the one object that I would love to retrieve um, from cycling history, um, Bernard Hinault's Ray-Bans from... Uh, Saint Etienne, 1985. For Bernardino, there was a period in the 80s when he was wearing Ray-Bans to race in, Ray-Ban aviators, in fact, and he crashed in them in the 1985 Tour de France on the state of Saint Etienne. And the, well, the Ray-Bans actually contributed to sort of tearing half of his face off. Um, but yeah, they would be, uh, I'm sure, a good and valuable one to own. Can I chuck in Tom Steele's bidon, his water bottle yes. that he threw in the 1997 yes. Tour de France uh, in the sprint finish? Basically got annoyed with somebody, picked his bottle out of the bottle cage and, and hurled it in the hurly-burly of a sprint. And I think was disqualified from the Tour for that, wasn't he? But whatever yes, happened to the he bidon? Was, he was. So if any of the listeners have got either of those, send them in. Uh, maybe in a jiffy bag. <laughs> um, Larry. Larry. Um, you have got, we hope, we, we very much hope that you've got a busy few weeks coming up because you've certainly got the Vuelta Burgos in, yep. Uh, yep. is it about a week's time that, that starts? I think you'll be racing your old buddy Primoz Roglic there. And then maybe, maybe the Vuelta España. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the next few weeks. Um, yeah, I got, uh, I have Burgos coming up, um, and that should be a good race. You know, normally like a Vuelta prep race, um, and yeah we'll see uh usually it's it's a pretty good one it's not like too crazy hard but uh you have the heat you have climbs and uh yeah usually a good chunk of the vuelta pellets on there and larry get yourself in that lovely purple leaders jersey one of the great leaders jerseys in professional cycling and yeah well get us one of those send us one of those in a jiffy bag okay i'll try and um yeah, then we'll see from there. Uh, yeah, I guess they'll decide the Vuelta team after that race. And I hope uh, to to be there in uh, Barcelona at the start. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll know uh, yeah, after Burgos. But. 
What does it depend on, Larry? What do you have to do in Burgos to? I think I just have to have yeah, good good performance. You know uh, what that means. I don't. I don't a hundred percent know, but uh, you know, if I'm going well, I think it's an easy race to show it uh, because there's plenty of hard courses, big climbs, stuff like that, and um, yeah. So so we'll see. I don't exactly know what the you know criteria they use are, but uh, but yeah. I don't think making a good coffee is one of them, but, uh, but yeah. <laughs> General bonhomie um, <laughs> and, um, and a winning personality. Yeah. Um, Larry, how have you... T- we didn't speak too much over the summer. Um, obviously, we were other- otherwise engaged at the Tour de France, but how did you sort of set up this second half to the season? Were you at altitude? I was. Tell us a bit about your prep for the second half of the season and whether you tweaked anything from the first half because, of course, we spoke to you a lot um, both in the close season and early in the year about things that you were maybe trying to tweak and, and do with your training this year. Yeah, so um, I went to altitude in Andorra for 18 days. I went to um, a hotel called Pigmaya, which is... <coughs> it's on... Uh, the like top of the Envalera Pass. So it's at 2,400 meters, which is pretty high. Um, but it's a pretty good setup. There were a lot of other riders there. Ineos was there having like a sort of team camp with, yeah, probably like um, six, eight guys, mostly of Welta team, as well as Pauline Ferrand Prevost getting ready for Worlds. Um, and then, oh, so you can tell us they have Welta team then you can unveil. Oh uh, yeah. Welta I don't know. I mean, us. no, that was like provisional Welta team, but, uh, yeah, you know, it was Garrett Thomas, uh, Pavel Sivakov, um, Lawrence de Plus, um, Remco Evenepoel. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, but there were a lot of Belgians there also. Um, so yeah, there was probably, I would say in total around 20 riders at this hotel, um, Bora had a few. Um, there were riders from Tosfor Vlaanderen, Intermarché. It was really uh, crazy. Um, so yeah, it was a full, full hotel. And so yeah, that was that was pretty much my uh, July. I did uh, yeah, eighteen days up there. Came down a few days um, before Poland, and yeah, was home for yeah only about like three nights, and then went straight to Poland. Poland straight to the World Championships. Now I'm at least home for a few days, so that's good. Why had you decided to go to that particular hotel and Andorra, Larry, and not? You've been to other... Yeah. Well, you usually go to Isola 2000, which is much closer to home for you. 100%. So a few reasons. I mean, I went there last year, um, and it was really good. Uh, so I decided to go back. But yeah, I guess the reason I... In the past, I've gone to Lavigno a lot um, in the summer. But Lavinia is really hit or miss with the weather. It's a beautiful place, um, but it's almost like there are too many riders and too many distractions. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of fun things to do in Lavinia. And uh, so I would say, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's like a lot of restaurants. There's a lot of, you know, there's always people that want to like go out and do something, which is actually super nice. But like, I guess the reason I'm going on an altitude camp is to like buckle down and be serious and really focus. Um so I was like, maybe better I just sort of uh, go to Andorra, which is a bit more boring than Lavinia. Boredom, mm. boredom is the new altitude. Ex- yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, so and, and Andorra is Andorra is uh, yeah altitude with the fun sucked out, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You're, very, exactly. you're very fond of Andorra. Uh, I, I would say like, maybe I mean, if you like shopping, Andorra is great. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But yeah, so. 
I don't know. I had a really last year. It worked out really well. I felt really good after. Um, so that was kind of why I wanted to go back because it's warmer. It's a little bit higher, which I think um, that can make a difference as well. Um, and then, yeah, I guess there's also there are more people there to ride with. It's also to go to in Isola. There's not really hotels that much. It's more apartments. So it's kind of nice to have your food cooked for you rather than cooking for yourself. Um, you know, if you're training really hard and things like that. So yeah, it was kind of a combination of things and yeah, so it was a good, good camp, boring, uh, but I think, uh, productive. So, well, Larry, we hope you reap the rewards of the altitude and the boredom at the Vuelta Burgos. I and, hope so um, too. Yeah, after that, the Vuelta, <laughs> but, um, Chats, before we go, Lionel, we've got the world, uh, individual time trial, men and women. Is the men on the same day as the women? This week? No, the the women are on Thursday. The men are on Friday. Then, of course, the women's road race is on Sunday to uh, as the World Championships, the Super Worlds wraps up in Scotland. Uh, but we'll be back next week to talk a bit about the time trial, I guess. I mean, the men's time trial is going to be quite interesting, I suppose, because uh, well, it's there's there's riders that that have kind of swept the medals over the last few years isn't there Filippo Ganna won in 2020 and 2021 just got himself a rainbow jersey on the track in the pursuit of course uh, Remco Evenepoel and Wout van Aert will be riding for Belgium van Aert's had two silver medals in 2020 and 2021 and Evenepoel bronze medalist the last two years and silver medalist in 2019 then of course there's the Swiss challenge Stefan Kung who's got a silver and a bronze to his name in recent years and Stefan Bissiger uh, not expecting too much from the reigning champion Tobias Foss so are we of Norway uh, a slight surprise winner last year uh, hasn't really uh, replicated that performance in time trials this year the men's time trial is almost 48 kilometers long um it's starting and finishing in sterling and has a, a little kicker at the finish so wow it's going to be it's going to be for one of those guys isn't it the big engines the philippe organa wout van art remco evenepoel i mean well take your pick could be in that order maybe yeah, i think um i think revenge for remco after well not winning at the weekend uh, he did a ride yesterday uh a sort of test ride uh he posted it on strava and i don't think i've ever seen anyone set as many new koms as as or get as many new sort of best times on segments as remco did in his ride yesterday he did i think the title of the ride was speed so he was obviously he was trying to go fast and he succeeded um so yeah he'd be my favorite larry tip before, before we go yeah i mean uh, i was actually gonna say remco i i, I thought i was I, for me it's gonna be between remco and ghana but i'm pretty sure remco will take it um <clears throat> yeah to me those are i thought remco was gonna be almost an outside pick considering he didn't uh deliver as much in the road race but to me i think he's probably been focusing on sustained efforts for the Vuelta and with that super punchy kind of criterion Mike course I think it just didn't suit him that well but I still think he showed he was pretty strong earlier on the earlier laps um but yeah I just don't think it was a course for him so I wouldn't be surprised if he blitzes this uh TT. Larry it's been a delight. It's been a pleasure to have you back. And you're off to lunch in Italy now. Yes. You're just going to hop over the border, hop down the Riviera <laughs> in, your, in your linen slacks, in your <laughs> white blazer. 
And um, no yeah, we'll have anything, a lovely yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, have a lovely, fruitful time in Burgos. Um, we very much hope we'll be seeing you. And we'll be talking to you probably on a daily basis if you're at the Vuelta a España. And until then, Larry. Um, goodbye. <laughs> ciao, Thank ciao. You. Thanks, everyone. Uh, yeah, hopefully I'll be back soon. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett.